Father, we come before you and we pray that you would just illuminate your word, that you would show us exactly what your will is for us concerning the things that you have left behind, the things in Exodus. Lord, there's so much richness that is here, and we'd ask that you would help us not to miss a single jot or tittle, that we'd be able to absorb everything that you have and recall it to mind as often as is necessary. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to even meet together in our country, that there is no persecution as in some other countries where we understand our brothers and sisters can lose their lives or be tortured. Father, we pray for them. We pray for Linda. We ask for your blessing upon your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I perform weddings, I normally have a question for the groom. Sometimes I do it before the actual ceremony. Sometimes I do it in the ceremony. And I state that Paul said, if you choose to get married, you will have trouble in this life if you get married. (laughs) And it's only because you're putting two sinners together and you're causing them to work out their walk in this world with Christ. And there's always going to be sparks because as man sharpens man, and that's referring generically to the human race, so does iron sharpen iron, that type of thing. And so there's going to be sparks. And I turn to the man and I say, are you willing to be bothered in this life? Or do you want to just give it up and say no? And they they always say, I'm willing. I'm willing to go through this trouble. And if you recall in Exodus chapter 35, there was a key word that was all the way through that chapter. Those who were willing, the craftsmen who were willing, the people who were willing to bring forth the offerings, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the gopher wood or the acacia wood to make everything for the tabernacle that was to be set up in the wilderness that God would have his place where he would meet with men. He would meet with mankind. God came down to the group of Israelites and said, you are my chosen people. I will meet with you and I will tell you what my will is. And he set up for them a covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and he had the Ten Commandments. And we know all about that story. But when it comes to this idea of being willing to be open to what God wants, it has to be a conscious decision in our lives to do so. How many times did you say, I'm a Christian, when people would give an altar call or people, you would get the gospel from somebody on the radio or somebody at a church where you said, yeah, I'm a Christian already. There has to be a time where you say, I am willing to sacrifice everything to follow God. And that's what God asks of us. Now, do you think if you went to God and you said, God, Should I give up more for you or should I not? What do you think God is going to say back to you? He's going to say, you choose. He's not going to say, yes, give it up. He's going to say, no, you choose. And so we all have to choose at some particular point in our lives, are we going to be radically sold out for Christ 
or are we not? Now, as we get to the end of this next chapter, we will find out, actually in this next section, we're going to find out that they gave so much, Moses had to say, stop. If you went to God and say, God, should I give more? And I'm not talking about monetarily necessarily. I'm just talking about your life. Should I give more to you, God? God is not going to come to you and say, yes, I command that you give more. He's going to say, you choose. God gives us the freedom. He gives us that free will. And there's so many things in our lives that we can take and say, no, I'm going to spend time doing this. Now, for me, just a little anecdote here. For me, when we got married, I slowly had to get rid of all the things that I did. I, I had to just sacrifice some things. It's like, all right, here goes another thing. And uh, I've told this story before, but uh, I was leaving to play racquetball in the afternoon with a friend of mine. And as we were getting ready to pull out, Patty pulls up, and I know that she had some things for me to do, but you know, I just needed to take some time. And I talked to her about it. She goes, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to play racquetball. And I could tell it was a little disappointing for her that for whatever reason, I can't remember what it was for. But I turned to her. I, I don't know if it was right then or if it was afterwards. And I said, it's the last and only thing I do for myself. And then the Lord just like stabbed me. Just, you know, it's just all oh, right. In the, and I remember it distinctly that I'm sorry. You said you would give up your whole life for her. And so just grumbling. I hit that ball so hard that day. I, I, I must have flattened about three of them. But I, you know, I just, it's the only thing I do for myself. And God later on, you know, he spoke to me about that. It's like, just give up everything. If you want to do something in the future, you know, you're not prohibited from doing it. But you have a chance to give up everything. And so we all have our hobbies, our things that we do, the things that we like, the, the secondary occupations, the diversions, the pastimes, the sidelines. But have you ever said, God, I am going to give up everything for you. And if you want to grant me some time to do something else leisurely, then that's up to you, God. But I'm going to give myself completely to you. And God would say, this is your choice. I will agree and stand by your choice. But he is never demanding of us. He never turns to us and says, you will do this. And this is how we exist now inside the church with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and King. He gives us the choice to do it. And so we have to make this choice. Now, when we make this choice, if we say, I'm going to follow after God and God is going to be everything in my life, there's going to be two things that happen. The number one thing is sacrifice. And scripture says, off your bodies is living sacrifices. And we're to take up our cross daily. And so that's just part of the Christian walk. We're going to have to sacrifice things, give them up in order to follow Christ. And then there is this other idea in Philippians that talks about this. We have been given the privilege to suffer for Christ. Now, sometimes that suffering is physical suffering. Sometimes it's mental. Because when we see other people just enjoying life and doing things and these hobbies and these pastimes and these sidelines and these secondary occupations, your flesh is going to go, I want to do that. And you might say to yourself in your flesh, yeah, but I'm going to go serve Christ. Woe is me. 
And it's not like that. It's like, I get to serve Christ and all these other things are meaningless. Yeah, I, I enjoy them and everything else. And all these people can go and do that. And what do you think God will do when you enter into heaven? He will say, well done. You did this on your own. Now we get prompted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come along and he'll say, so what do you think? Do you want to do this? Or do you want to do that? And you have to make a decision. Now some people just, they become myopic. It's like they're a cyclops. They have one eyeball in their head. It just looks forward. That's what they're going to do. They're not going to be taken off their game, so to speak. And they're very unwilling to do whatever God would prompt them to do. Now before I go on any farther... It is really necessary as we go through these sections of scripture and it focuses on the willing. We cannot subjugate that to what God has done for us. If we ever lose sight of that, it just becomes all works. The only reason that we're doing anything that we would sacrifice, that we would go through any type of suffering, whether physical or mental, for the sake of God, it's it's because... God has worked in our hearts and we're willing to do so. We're willing to go forward for him, but it is him that first loved us. It is he that gave himself for us. And if we ever lose sight of that, we have a dead religion. We're just simply going through the motions thinking this is the thing that we get to do or we have to do because it's just part of our Christian responsibility. So by way of introduction here, I just want to make sure that as we learn about Christ and we see these Israelites and we see Moses, we want to make sure that we are doing so willingly when he calls us to be in service to him and keep at the forefront of our minds, it's what Christ has done for us that keeps us motivated in that direction. That's why we sacrifice. That's why we suffer. That's why we have problems in relationships. People are always at a different stage as far as their commitment to Christ and it always creates strife or conflict when that happens. And so these Israelites, they were sequestered. They were put up off to the side. They were taken as a people into the wilderness. There was not a lot that they could do. What nightclubs would they go to at night? They, they probably wouldn't. They would probably meet in some tents and have a meal and that type of thing. But they were completely sold out to God. And the whole camp, the two or three million, was in preparation for making this tabernacle where God decides to show up. He goes, that's what I'm going to show up in. That right there, the God of the universe. I mean, have you looked at the universe lately? Have you seen the pictures that are out there? And the, ah, oh, it's just a tremendously beautiful sight. All the colors and everything that God has set up in the universe, the galaxies and the quasars and the black holes and the, oh, it's just beautiful. The stars and the planets, all of those things. You look at that and you just marvel at what God has done. And so God has set up this world for us. We might suffer. We might be willing to sacrifice. But we want to make sure that we have the mindset of the Israelites. I am sold apart to God. And he is the one that we're going to serve. And we're going to make this tabernacle. And so we're picking it up here in verse, or chapter 36, verse 1. And it talks about these two guys again. And all the skilled people who were there to work on the tabernacle. So Bezalel, Aholiab... And every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord had commanded. Now remember, even though it's a command of the Lord, it was based on the willingness of the people to come forward. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability 
and to who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work. So anything else that they were doing? They left to work on the sanctuary. And Moses said to the people, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work that the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do the work. And of course, there's so much application there. But could you imagine today? Stop. Just stop. We have enough. We don't need any more. Have you ever seen a ministry do that? That would be great. You know, if that's the case, God provides exactly what we need. And if you keep on making pleas for more and more, it's like we're building our own kingdom. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to criticize God's other servants, something like that, when it comes to this, because they, they may have big plans. That's wonderful. And as the Lord provides, then you just expand it. You bring it out as he provides. But you want to make sure you're keeping that first. You don't put the cart before the horse. You don't say, let's raise all kinds of money. We'll figure out what we're going to do. No, you don't do that. You just say, God, we want to do this. What do you think? And then the Lord provides the money and you go forward. And that's how it's supposed to work. We wait on the guidance of the Lord. So more than enough was given. And focus, again, should never be taken away. These people are giving and giving and giving. Focus should never be taken away on what God has done for us first and primarily. So we're getting into the tabernacle here. God has decided that he's going to meet with the people. There was the tent of meeting, and then there's the tabernacle. The tent of meeting is where Moses would meet with God. He would go inside. God would descend upon that place, and he would talk with Moses as a man talks face to face. But there was this tabernacle that was being set up. Now, we're going to be showing you some pictures here, pictures that we have already gone through in the book of Exodus. So I'm not going to labor over these last four chapters here in the book of Exodus too much. I am going to review them because they are the word of God. God put it in here a second time. He wants us to be reminded of this. Now, this idea of the tabernacle, it was 75 feet by 150 feet, and it was a place that contained the holy place, which was 15 feet by 30 feet, and then there was a a separate compartment, which was 15 by 15. Now, this particular room here, Going this way is 40 feet. I think this is a square room, uh, 40 or 45 feet going this way. And then there's a section, it would be like behind these curtains. This is exactly how it would be set up, something like this, and that's an area 15 by 15 in the back. And the priest, he would do the sacrifice once a year, Yom Kippur, and he'd go through the curtain there. Nobody else was allowed to go in there. There was no light in there. It was dark. And he would sprinkle the blood of a bull on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat. That's what he would do. And in this area, it was set up with different artifacts of the tabernacle. You want to show the first picture there, Daryl? Now, this is how it was set up. And I'm going to show you the mock-up in the Valley of Timnah that I've already showed you before when we started in the book of Exodus. Now, as you walk in on the right-hand side there, you see the red line. Now, that would be blue, purple, and scarlet yarn uh, 
curtains that would be hanging down and you just walk through the curtains and once you got to the holy place you had the table of showbread on the right hand side you had the lampstand on the left hand side which was trimmed twice a day by the priest and they used oil they poured olive oil in there and they had these little wicks and so they made sure it stayed burning all day and then as you walked forward you have the altar of incense and they had this incense that they would make specifically for the tabernacle and it represents the prayers of the saints and i've already been through all of that and then once a year the high priest which would be aaron in this case he had walked through the next red line into the holy of holies where you had the ark of the covenant and the lid of that was made out of pure gold and there were two angels and we'll get to the picture of all of that but i just wanted to remind you what it looks like now the mock-up in the valley of timnah this is what God said would be created that he could come down and meet with men. Go ahead and show that picture, Daryl, the next one. That's it. Now, if God who created the universe with all of its magnificence, God says, that's what I want. It's like a Boy Scout pup tent. You know, and and God says, I'm going to meet in this tent. And that's what it is. It's a tent. It's a tent with wood walls that are overlaid with gold. And you have these sea cow hides that are over the top. And again, that's a debate whether it's sea cows or not because they may have been considered unclean. We don't know exactly. Maybe it was dolphins. We don't know what kind of skin it was. But all of this, as I told you when we started in the book of Exodus, was to depict God. When you look at the tabernacle, you're to think of Christ. There's so much symbolism involved with that. It is just incredible. Now, I'm going to read this here. In the book of Exodus, it starts with... I'm looking for... Then Moses, verse 2, summoned Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person whom the Lord had given ability who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary... And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough to do the work the Lord had commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they had already or what they already had was more than enough to do the work. Verse 8 reads, All the skilled men among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim worked into them by the skilled craftsmen. All the curtains were the same size, 28 cubits, which is 40 or 42 feet long, and four cubits wide, which is about six feet wide. They joined together, or they joined five of the curtains together, and did the same with the other five. Then they made loops of blue material along the edge of the end excuse me along the edge of the end curtain in one set and the same was done with the end curtain in the other set they also made 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other then they made 50 gold clasps and used them to fasten the two sets of curtains together so that the tabernacle was a unit they made curtains of goat hair and are for the tent over the tabernacle 11 altogether, the 11 curtains were the same size, 30 cubits long, 4 cubits wide. They joined five of the curtains into one set and the other six into the other set. And they made 50 loops along the edge of the 
excuse me, along the edge of the end curtain to the one set and along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. They made 50 bronze clasps to fasten the tent together as a unit. Then they made the tent a covering of ram skin dyed red and over that a covering of hides of sea cows. Now go on to the next picture if you would there, Daryl. And this shows the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now this is it. If you look closely... If you walked in between where the slant is going down, where you have the sea cow hides on the outside, and if you notice the walls that are in there, those are simply planks of gopher wood or acacia wood that are overlaid with gold. And then they would have rings on each one of these panels. They were panels, maybe the size of one of those back doors, the sanctuary as you walk in. And they had rings in them, and they'd stick this gold bar through. And so it was a temporary structure that was meant to be mobile. And they'd put those up and they would cover the top with the uh, goat skin dyed red. Everything that that went into the making of that, they would take it down when God would move and then they would set it back up. And they knew, if you recall from the beginning of the book of Exodus, God's Shekinah glory came down and hovered like a pillar over the Holy of Holies. So remember, you walk in the sanctuary, and then you had the cover, the curtain that was there. And behind the curtain, that's where God's glory would come, probably through the top of the tent into where the mercy seat was, and it would go all the way up into the sky. It would be this column that would be going up. During the day, it would look like a cloud. At night, it looked like a pillar of fire. And it would be there constantly. And when that thing would move, the Levites would all get together and say, okay, let's go break down the tabernacle. And they would get in there and they would take everything down. They'd cover the ark. There's a covering for that. And they'd bear that on their shoulders. They'd take that out. They'd break everything down until that pillar came to rest. And wherever it came to rest, they'd say, okay, here's the Holy of Holies. And they would set it up. They'd put the 15 by 15 right there. And they would line it up. Okay, there's a cloud. And they would do everything. They would make sure that was their job. They worked for the Lord. And so with this, you have the boards and the bars or the frames. And that's what you're looking at in this picture is the frames that actually hold up this tent that's in the wilderness. If you guys have ever been backpacking up by Yosemite or up by Tuolumne Meadows, there's this place that leads from Tuolumne Meadows that goes up into the mountains. And you get to this one camp called Vogelsang. And it is just absolutely gorgeous up there. And they have this one tent camp. If you ride horses, you can actually sign up for one of these horse caravans that will take you on this 45 to 50 mile trek. And you'll be on a horse and you'll go and you'll stay in these tents. And these tents have wood sides and they're canvas on the top. And they have little uh, pot belly stoves on the inside for if it's cold, you just warm up that pot belly stove. But it's a tent and it has these walls of wood. And then the cover of it is canvas. And so you can stay in those. But that's where God decided to dwell. And with these frames, just like up in Yosemite or Vogelsang, or out here in the wilderness of Timnah, and that's where this depiction is, it would be these wood frames. And they made upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame was 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Now, a cubit is from the elbow to the tip of the finger. And so if you have a cubit and a half, it's about 
this long. Actually, it's probably the width of that door right there. And that's how wide these boards are. They made 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and made 40 silver bases to go under them, two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, they made 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. They made six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, and two frames were made for the corners of the tent at the far end. These two corners, the frames, were double from the bottom all the way up to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both were made alike. So there were eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. They also made crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle and five for the other side, and the five for the frames on the west at the far end of the tabernacle because on the east it would be the curtain that you would go in. They made the center crossbar so that it extended from end to end at the middle of the frames. They also, or excuse me, they overlaid the frames with gold and made gold rings to hold the crossbars. They also overlaid the crossbars in gold. So one more time looking at that picture there, Daryl. They had the pillars at the entry, you had the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and that's what the, the door, so to speak, was. Now, this is a very simplistic depiction of what the curtains would have looked like going in. An embroiderer would have made these just beautiful with cherubim on them. But, of course, I'm sure this is under an extreme budgetary constraint. And so when they made this, those aren't real gold pillars. The sides aren't real gold. They just kind of set it up there in the wilderness. And you see where the poles are doubled on either side. It was called that they would be doubled on each end. It's, that's how it is uh, depicted in the book here, in the book of Exodus. And remember, this is where God chose to make his dwelling. In verse 35, and this is talking about the veil or the screen. That is there, they made the curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by skilled craftsmen. Now, if you know somebody who has an embroidering uh, sewing machine, have you ever seen those? They have spools of thread all over the place. Well, back then they would have done it by hand. They, They didn't even have a foot pedal sewing machine. You know, it was, they did this stitching And how many people do you think were working on it? As many as they could have the capacity for, I'm sure were working on these things, and they all matched. And they would have just been beautiful to look at. And again, this is a depiction of Jesus Christ. Now, you have the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. If you read anything about that, there is the idea that the red symbolizes Christ and his sacrifice, his blood sacrifice. The purple is supposed to symbolize deity the other thing about the blue uh, commentators are all over the place what the blue is supposed to represent one rabbi says well the blue reminds us of the sea which reminds us of heaven which reminds us where god dwells and that's why blue was used and then you have others that say no the blue just symbolizes jesus and so people are divided on what the blue means but they're pretty much unified on the purple and the red, but these three colors, that's the only three colors God said, I want you to use these three colors. So there is some significance given to them, but the blue especially, we're really not sure what that's supposed to represent, or some people think they are, but we're not really sure for our purposes here. Verse 37, for the entrance 
to the tent. They made the curtain blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. And they made five posts with hooks for them. They overlaid the tops of the posts with their brands, with gold, excuse me, with their bands, with gold, and made the five bases of bronze. Now going into chapter 37 here. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold molding around it. You can go ahead and put that picture up there, Daryl, if you haven't already. He cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he inserted the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. He made the entombment cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the end of the cover. He made one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. At the two ends, he made them one piece with the cover. The cherubim had wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim faced each other, looking towards the cover. Now, in this picture, remember that I showed you some pictures of incorrect depictions of the uh, Ark of the Covenant? If you see the poles, they're at the bottom. Now, the poles would have been a little bit longer than that because the priests would have had to carry them and they were permanently affixed. Some of these pictures show the poles up at the top, which makes it more stable to carry. And remember, I told you the reason for that is because if that lid is solid gold, this thing, it's heavy. This thing is not light and four guys are bearing this. And this is the law that they're carrying. And it was a burden for them to do so. And then that's one thing that they would show that is incorrect. And the second thing that they would show that is incorrect are these wings. Now, these wings, we just read they're supposed to be facing up and the heads are supposed to be facing down towards the mercy seat of God. That's where they're facing. This one, it has the wings going up and the heads are kind of facing down. The one that they actually have inside of the one in Timnah, it's a little more accurate. But uh, this is kind of what it would have looked like. Now, inside of that, you would have had, you remember, class, what that was on the inside of this? The Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and what was the final thing? A jar of manna would have been on the inside. Now, the question that everybody is thinking about is, is this thing still around today? I've told you before that I've gone to Israel, and you go to the the Temple um, Institute, and the Temple Institute they believe that the temple is going to be rebuilt. And they have been making the garments. They have all that ready to go. They've been making the pitchforks for the sacrifices. They, they have everything ready to go. They have plans ready to go for this. And they'll sit you down. And I told you this at the beginning of, of Exodus, but they'll sit you down. They'll show you this video. You go into this room and you sit down. The room is probably about the size of this part of the church. And you watch this video, and they have this rabbi up there, and he has this big black rim hat, and he's talking, he has a big gray beard, and he, I think I remember his arm is up like this, and he's talking, and they give him the question. So in order to have the temple, we're supposed to have the Ark of the Covenant. Do we have the Ark of the Covenant? And he just gets this wiry type grin, and he goes, anybody who's anybody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. And that's all he says. And so, do they know where it is? Well, 
I think that they do know where it is. It's not in some government archive that Indiana Jones boxed up and put inside some warehouse. They have it somewhere. We just don't know where. And there's all kinds of theories as to where this thing is located. I'm telling you, when they bring that thing out, you're going to see the the Jews just have one huge party. And when it comes out, we're not going to be here. We're going to be raptured. We're going to see the real one in heaven, you know, the depiction in heaven where the mercy seat is and all of that. But they're going to bring it out, and they're going to set up this Ark of the Covenant, and it's going to be in the Holy of Holies there. And the Antichrist, we know according to the book of Daniel and Revelation, that this is going to be the abomination which makes desolate, and it is going to be a bad thing. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24, and how this is going to be a bad thing. This is in the middle of the tribulation, but this is the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's mercy seat. There is not an actual seat on the top of that, but that's what is called the mercy seat of God. Now, this goes on to say, I think I was in verse 15, the poles for carrying the table were made out of acacia wood and were overlaid with gold, and they were made from pure gold, the articles for the table, its plates and dishes and bowls, and its pitchers for pouring out drink offerings. Now, this is talking about the table of showbread. The showbread, if you remember the first picture, as you walked in, there would be this table off to the right. And I sent you this picture today, uh, Daryl. Uh, if you would put this one up, this particular table was 36 inches by 18 inches by 24 inches. And they would put out 12 loaves of bread, one representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they would have, uh, you know, on the priest, you also had 12 stones on the priest's shoulders and 12 stones in his breastplate. But this was referring to Jesus Christ. Here's the bread of life, equally spread over all 12 of the tribes, which means it's available for everybody in the Jewish community, so to speak, in the 12 tribes of Israel. And today we know it's available for the entire world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But this bread was set out there perpetually. They'd bake fresh bread every day, and the only one who was able to eat it were to be the priest. It was not available for anybody else, but that's what was set up, and it was meant to refer to the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. Now, when Titus came in in 70 AD, and he destroyed the temple, and this was a judgment because Jesus said, there will not be one stone left upon another, because the disciples were marveling on how wonderful the temple was when Jesus showed up there. And he said, all the stones are going to be taken down and it's going to be destroyed. And that Titus did that. And when Titus did that, and he had such a victory, after his death, his brother Domitian decided to make an edifice honoring him. And it's called the Arch of Titus. If you know what the Arch of Titus is, it's right next or it's close to the Colosseum in Rome. And you have this arch. It's just two pillars that come up and there's an arch underneath and it's flat on top. So it's like a square, but there's an arch in the middle. On one side, on the inside, if you look up, depending on which side you're going in from, if you look up on the right-hand side, you will see Titus with four horses inside of uh, a chariot. And in front of that is a goddess and depicting that she is the goddess of war and how victory was given to Titus. On the other side, you have the Jews. 
You have a menorah that's up there. You have the trumpets. If you look up the Arch of Titus, you will see this in a relief that's on there. They have also this table depicted up there. They have the table of showbread and they have the menorah or the lampstand that was inside the temple at that time. And they had two trumpets sticking out and that's what they would use at the temple. And so Titus destroyed that and they made a big arch for him or his brother did, Domitian. I think Vespasian was their father, but Titus died and Domitian did this afterward to honor his brother. And so these things that were in the temple, they were obviously taken off, but you don't see the Ark of the Covenant. You don't see that in the relief. The Ark of the Covenant is not there. You do have the, uh, excuse me, the, the showbread or the table of showbread up there, you have the trumpets and you have the menorah, but you don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 17 says, they made the lampstand of pure gold and hammered it out, base and shaft, its flower-like cups. Now this is referring to the lampstand. The buds and the blossoms were of one piece. Six branches extended from one side of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Now this would be the depiction of the menorah. Now we have had in our foyer a menorah that came from Israel and it shows that it's not exactly like this, but it was pretty ornate. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms were on one branch and three of the next branch and the same for all six branches extended from the lampstand. Could you put the lampstand up there? There it is. And so it would have looked something like this. And each one of those candles at the top, they're really not candles, they're cups. And they were meant to hold oil, the olive oil. And they would pour that in there and they'd trim the wicks to make sure that the light was perpetually before the Lord. And going on with this, verse 20, it says, And on the lampstand were four cups shaped like almond flowers of buds and blossoms. One bud was under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand. A second bud was under the second pair. And the third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. And so if you look at that, and it's it's showing these other pairs of buds, that's the... um, As you go down from the top one, you'll see two more that are under there, or three total. And some people depict it like that. Some people put the almond buds on the arms that are going down. It doesn't really make a difference for our sake here. Verse 23, they made the seven lamps as well as its wicks, trimmers, and trays of pure gold. And they made the lampstand and all of its accessories from one talent of pure gold. And so this was what was used to provide light inside of the... Uh, not the Holy of Holies, but the holy place. And that is where the lampstand is, and that's where the the table of showbread is, and that's where the altar of incense is located. And that's what we come to next. They made the altar of incense out of acacia wood. It was a square, or it was square, a cubit long and a cubit wide and two cubits high. Its horns of one piece with it, they overlaid the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and made the gold molding around it. And that's the picture of it right there. And they would just put incense on top and they'd burn it. So you'd walk into this tent and it'd be filled with this smoke of the incense. And then if the priest walked into the Holy of Holies, there'd be the Shekinah glory of God in there, this mist. I don't know if the if the priest went in there, if the mist kind of like turned to the pillar of fire. I don't know how it exactly took place, but this was the only natural light in there was from the lampstand, and it would have this mist, and so you'd walk in there, it'd be kind of foggy all the time. And, you know, have you ever been into, uh, I take that back. I was driving down the road the other day, and over here is a vape store on the corner. Have you seen that? 
It's on the corner of Woodside and uh, Main Street. And I went by there the other night. We were coming home. I think it was from church, coming home. And I drove by and I saw four people in there. And they were vaping away. And it was just like a cloud was inside the whole room. If you walked in there, you would have been inundated by their exhaling mist that would have just covered the place. And that's probably what it would have looked like inside the tabernacle. Just this mist, this smoke that is everywhere on the inside. So if you want to get a picture of what that's like, just go by at night, the vape store, and you'll see the mist that is in there. And so you had this altar of incense. It's 18 inches by 18 inches by three and a half feet. Twice a day, the priests would go in there and they would burn the incense. And it represented the prayers of God's people. And these prayers were a sweet aroma to God. Now, going on with this, they had also make anointing oil, and this was for the priest who was to be anointed with this, verse 29. They also made the sacred anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense, the work of a perfumer. And God said, you are not to make the incense, nor are you to make the anointing oil for yourselves. It is only for use in the tabernacle. Today, you go to Israel... They'll say, this is the work of a perfumer. You can buy the perfume that is used inside of the temple. You know, so what God said not to do, they are doing. This is the incense the priest would have used. And you can buy that along with your olive wood Jesus and your olive wood little cup that you take communion with in the garden. I mean, it's such a racket over there. Just what they were doing in the first century, making money in the temple... You do the same thing over there today. It's just an honest dollar. You know, you go in there and you see the stores and they have everything. Wood Jesus, you can get a full olive wood uh, manger scene made out of olive wood there in all of these stores. They're in every single store just about that you would have going over there. And so they're, they're making this stuff and you can go over there and you can buy some and you go, oh, this is what it would have smelled like. Now you're a child of the, the maker, the child of God, and I don't think he's going to hold that against you if you wanted to get some of that, but I just thought I would point that out. Then you have the altar. Exodus chapter 38, verse 1. They built an altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, three cubits high. It was square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. If you want to put that up there, Daryl, that'd be great. They made a horn at each end of the four corners so that the horns of the altar were of one piece, and they overlaid the altar with bronze. They made all of its utensils of bronze, its pots, shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and frying pan, or fire pans. Remember what they were doing is they were sacrificing animals. They were throwing them onto this altar, and they were either cooking them or they were burning them up as a burnt offering. <clears throat> Verse 4, they made a grating for the altar, a bronze network to be under the ledge halfway up the altar. They cast bronze rings to hold the poles for the four corners of the bronze grating. They made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. They inserted the poles into the rings so they would be on the sides of the altar for carrying it. They made it hollow out of boards. And so you have this, this altar that is there. And they are, you know, in our vernacular, they're barbecuing is what they're doing. And, of course, you have this little ramp there, and you, you have these shovels and pitchforks. That's for the ashes. You know, you got to take out these pitchforks. And, and the priest, when something was on the altar there, if he wanted something to eat there, he'd grab that pitchfork. And as the sacrifice was on the altar, he'd stick the pitchfork in there and he'd pulse them out. This is dinner. You know, and he would take it home to the priest and they would eat what is there. That's what the high priest family did. But this is where the sacrifice 
was to take place. And of course, the priests, what they would do is they would take the animal that is going to be sacrificed, they'd lay their hands on it, symbolically transferring sins to the animal, and then the animal would be slaughtered, and the blood would flow from that point, and then they'd take the animal, and some of it they would burn outside of the camp, and some of it would go onto the altar there. And in Israel, if you went to the Temple Mount, they say that on these feast days, the blood would flow from the Temple Mount down into the Kidron Valley by the gallon. I mean, it would just be coming down. There'd be thousands. Thousands of animals that would be sacrificed. And you could imagine the stench of the place. If you've ever been to uh, anywhere where they slaughter animals, there's a distinct smell of that blood. And there were thousands and thousands of animals that were sacrificed on these feast days. Then you had the bronze basin or the laver. And they made this uh, bronze basin, it's bronze stand, from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, the women would have had these bronze mirrors, and you could buff it to where it was real shiny, and you could look right into it. Now, this depiction of this bronze laver, this isn't anything like the one at the temple. The one at the temple that Solomon made was said to hold 10,000 gallons of water. Now, how big does that have to be? I remember my parents, they put in a pool, and it was 20,000 gallons. And I'm thinking, okay, half of that size, that was big. These priests must have been really dirty. You know, and so they, they had to go, they washed. And, and this one that's depicted here, you have some bowls at the bottom. There are some depictions of this laver where they had to wash before they went in, where there was also a basin at the bottom on the ground where they could wash their feet as well. So they'd wash their feet, they'd wash their hands, they'd be all clean, then they could go in and minister inside. And so... This is how they would approach God. And at the time of Solomon, you know, this was greatly exaggerated from what it was in the wilderness. Now, remember, this is God's design. The temple was David's design. Solomon may have added some stuff to it, but it was of human design. The temple was. God chose this to be the place where he'd show up and communicate with humankind. Verse 9. Next, they made the courtyard. The south side was 100 cubits long and had curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side was also 100 cubits long and had 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The west end was 50 cubits wide and had curtains with 10 posts and 10 excuse me, 10 posts and 10 bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The east end towards the sunrise was also 50 cubits wide. Curtains 15 cubits long were on one side of the entrance with with three posts and three bases. And curtains 15 cubits long were on the other side of the entrance to the courtyard with three posts and three bases. All the curtains around the courtyard were finely twisted linen. The bases for the posts were bronze. The hooks and bands of the posts were silver and their tops were overlaid with silver. So all the posts of the courtyard had silver bands. And so all of this, you know, you look at the bronze, you look at the silver, you look at the gold. It is thought that today the value would have been about $10 million that this would have been an expense. Of course, you know, you add the inflation and all of that from the time that they would have brought these materials. And if you would show the, the, there it is, that that is the one in the Valley of Timna. Now, I've been here. This is an almost exact replica except for the electrical panel that is in the lower left-hand side. Uh, They would not have had that back in the time of 
Moses, but this is what it would have looked like. Now, with all of this, you know, we're supposed to go, what the, what, what's the application of this? Before the priest could do anything, first you have the gate. You go to the gate, and you can see that on the lower, right in the middle of the left-hand side, that would have been blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Everything else was just the finely twisted linen around the outside. The gate looks beautiful. Jesus, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. You had to enter through the gate. Now, they didn't call this the door. They called it a gate. It was a curtain is what it was. And the first thing you saw the way to get in, you said, wow, that was beautiful. The work of an embroiderer, finely twisted linen with cherubim on the front. If you go to heaven, you have the cherubim around the throne of God. Before you get to God, you would see the cherubim that are right there. So you go through the gate. Then the first thing you run into is the altar of sacrifice. Before you can approach God in the Holy of Holies, you must bring a sacrifice. And it must be a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Now, Jesus Christ was our sacrifice, and he was placed upon the altar. Now, he wasn't offered as a burnt sacrifice, so to speak, but he was the sacrifice. And because of the sacrifice, you are therefore then declared clean, which the priest had to go and wash before he went into the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle. And as he went through that tabernacle, he had to go through another door of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. You cannot get into the holy place without passing through that door or that gate or those curtains, which were beautiful. But the depiction of the tabernacle on the outside, it's of sea cows. And of course, the book of Isaiah says, Jesus was nothing to look at, was not a handsome man like George Clooney. You know, he, he didn't look like that. He was just this common guy. Now, if, and I've talked about how Jesus may have looked back then, but he was a Jew, right? Now, Jews are Semitic people, and they have some darker skin. We don't know how dark he was, but some Jews are pretty dark. And normally, Jews, they have a little bit of a nose, you know? So he, he has a nose that comes out a little bit. And he was a carpenter. So he had some muscle. He was probably a little gangly, maybe. He, the average height of somebody back then would have been five foot four to five foot six. You know, so he walks in. He's not a real tall guy. He just shows up. He's what? Unassuming. He just walks in. He would have had short hair, not long hair. He would have had short hair because it was shameful for a man to wear long hair. And I'm right at the top of the hour here. <sighs> It was just getting so good, you know? <clears throat> you know what? I'm going to pick it up right there next time. I'm going to review what this tabernacle is all about. But I would invite you to read the rest of the chapter here. What God has done here with this tabernacle is for us. It's not just for the Jews. So my prayer for you is that you have complete understanding of what God had intended for the tabernacle. You're able to make the connection from the Old Testament to now in the church age in which we dwell. And may God fill you with understanding with this and may you be blessed with that knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have ingratiated us with your knowledge and your word, that you have shown us these things for our benefit. And we ask, Lord, that you would use this to strengthen us in our faith, knowing that as we seek after you willingly, you will bless us and you will call us those good and faithful servants. 
as we enter into the gates of heaven, we thank you for your care and your, uh, your watching over us, the providence that you exercise. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to manifest yourself in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, and everyone send.